now and only eight pastors. And so, you know, his burden is we need to train leaders. And one of the things I'll be doing, Lord willing, in the fall is going with him to Germany. A lot of uh, Iranians have fled Iran. They're getting saved, and many of them feel called of God. And we will be actually training leaders. That's one of our uh, focal points, as well as doing a seminar to share the gospel with non-believers. So let's stand. We're going to pray for that this morning. I want to pray for our community. We had a terrible incident that happened. I've been, you know, kind of getting fragments uh, the last few days of what happened at Walmart. You know, we live in a dangerous world. Isn't that true? Things are not what they always appear to be. Uh, our society is breaking down. I don't know if you guys realize that. And the ultimate answer is Jesus. Amen? And I'm looking forward to when he comes back and makes our world a better place. Believe me. But while we're here, we are the Jesus the people need. We are bringing his presence into our world. So let's pray that God would help us uh, as Christians to have a profound, powerful impact in our culture today. And also, let's pray today, God would open our hearts as we hear his word. Lord, I thank you for race. I thank you for the ministry uh, to train leaders, uh, Persian leaders, Father, so that uh, they can really minister to the people in Iran. The church is really growing there dramatically. So I pray, uh, empower us, Lord, as we do this. I pray for favor. I just pray that you will move supernaturally in developing future leaders there and for our nation as well. I pray today, Lord, that you would watch over our community. We know that uh, there's a lot of broken people and many people act out in a very unhealthy and malicious and evil way. And so we recognize that you ultimately are the answer to our social ills. And I pray that even as we hear your word today, that you would open our hearts and that we would uh, rediscover you all over again, that we would fall in love with you like we never have before, that this Christmas would be the most meaningful and profound Christmas ever. And I pray for ones that may not know you, that your Holy Spirit would speak deeply in every heart and so that we would all come to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? That's been a question that's been asked over and over again for the last 2,000 years. And different people have different responses. I am so convinced that what you and I believe about Jesus determines not only the quality of our lives, but also the destiny of our lives. So this is an extremely critical question. I mean, there's a lot of questions you and I get asked. People are asking us questions all the time, but this may be the most important question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus actually asked that question to his disciples. Now, it's interesting in Matthew, when Jesus is traveling with his disciples, it says he came to a region of Caesarea Philippi. This was actually not a known Jewish site. It was actually just outside of the border of where the Jews were living. There were a lot of Gentiles there, and there was a lot of pagan worship going on at Caesarea Philippi. And actually, we've, I've been to this site many times, six times actually, and when you get there, there's actually a big opening, and that's the place where they call it the gates of hell. It's really interesting. And he says to them at that place, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Jesus said, some say, you know, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And that's the question I'm raising today. Who do you say Jesus is? P. 
Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. How many begin to realize that when you and I understand who he is, that's actually an act of God's grace in your heart. God's spirit is revealing and opening your heart to make Christ known to you. And my prayer, and our prayer as I met with men this morning was that the spirit of God would open your heart, that you would have an understanding as to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, a number of years ago, Dan Brown wrote a book called Da Vinci Code. We've, you know, that's a million Crazy, 80 million copies are sold, or 240 million. It's just crazy how many people read that book, which was a fictitious book, which means it wasn't true. And he was basically, you know, jumping on the bandwagon that Jesus is, you know, didn't really declare himself to be God. And so what I'm going to try to do this morning is show you from the scriptures and church history who Jesus really is. He says in his book, many scholars claimed that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity and using it to expand their power. You know, listen, the church really hasn't benefited, especially those early disciples, from doing that. I don't know what power base they had. You know, one of them who betrayed Jesus died and the other... 10 of 11 were martyred because they've said Jesus was the Messiah. So the idea that, you know, Jesus didn't really, you know, was really God, that concept, they, uh, basically Dan Brown and other people and, and a lot of liberal scholars will talk like this, that that didn't happen until the Nicene Council in the early part of the fourth century, literally in 325 AD. Okay, but that is so bogus and so can easily be challenged not only by the biblical records that we have, but also by the early church fathers themselves. And so we have to understand what was really happening at Nicaea. And a lot of people don't understand the background to the story. And that's my job as a pastor to kind of fill you in a little bit. So what were those bishops doing meeting in Nicaea in 325? What they were really trying to do was deal with a false understanding as to the nature of who Jesus is. And there was one bishop by the name of Arian who was basically diminishing the nature of Jesus, saying he wasn't equal to the Father, therefore he wasn't God. He was actually inferior. That's what Arian was teaching. And however, the vast majority of the church fathers maintained what we would consider the orthodox position, that Jesus was same in substance and equal to the Father, and therefore Jesus is God. So I wanted to just give you a few snapshots over the centuries. Now remember, this is 325. So let's go back in time a little bit. And here we have Ignatius, who wrote in 105 AD, he said, God himself was manifested in human form. You see, we're talking about Christmas. What are we doing right now? We're celebrating a season of time that speaks of God becoming a man. That's what Christmas is really all about. Clement wrote in 150 AD, it is fitting that you should think of Jesus Christ as God. In 160, Justin Martyr wrote, the father of the universe has a son and he is even God. In 180, Irenaeus said, he is God for the name Emmanuel indicates that. Emmanuel means God with us. You know, in 200, Tertullian wrote, Christ our God. And then we 
See here, Origen in 2.25 said, no one should be offended that the Savior is God. Novatian said, he is not only man, but God also in 2.35. See, I'm, I'm giving you dates far earlier than 3.25. So you can see the early church fathers were reinforcing the idea Jesus is God. Cyprian said in 2.50, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. So the reality of what was happening at Nicaea was simply this, and Leo Davis, who wrote a book called The First Seven Ecumenical Councils, said, the problem which confronted the leaders of the church, the bishops there, that assembled at Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, had long been the basic questions confronting all previous Christian theologians. It was not simply whether Jesus is God. The problem was how within this monotheistic uh, system. You know, monotheism means one God. How, how can Jesus be God and the Father be God and the Holy Spirit be God? See, they were struggling with how to communicate this concept that there's one God and yet manifested in three persons. He would, they were trying to maintain the unity of God while insisting on the deity of one who was distinct from the Father, which is namely Jesus. So that was the big issue at the Nicene Council. And, the, and, the, and there were a few people that were following Arian and they were arguing that Jesus was inferior to the Father, which out of that council said that's an erroneous idea and was now considered a heretical idea. So it's not orthodox. Now, later on, Augustine, who was born in 354, a little later, he wrote something very significant he said, the Father is God. I don't have the PowerPoint. I don't know why I didn't put it up. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. There's groups out there that say that. That's a confusion. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There is only one God. We need to understand that. It's very important. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't even believe in the Trinity. I'm going, well, then you're, you can't really be a Christian. I don't think we understand how important this is because what we're declaring is that Jesus Christ is God who became a man. And that's the essence of what Christmas is all about. Now, John, in writing his gospel, we're gonna, our, our text is found in John chapter one. So you may wanna turn there in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the pew. We're gonna look at chapter one. We're gonna look at a lot of verses in chapter one. So we're going to look at the scriptures now to see what the scriptures teach about who Jesus is. And do they say that Jesus is God? And I believe very strongly, as we're going to see, they do. Now, John, in writing his gospel, gives us what we call the, the, the purpose statement. And the purpose statement is found in chapter 20 and verse 30. It says, John performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now, if you've studied John, you'll find out that there are seven major signs and seven major teachings all pointing to Jesus. He says, which are not recorded in this book, but they are written that you might believe, excuse me, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. We could translate it the Christ, that's the Greek. The Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So, John's purpose in writing is so that we would believe what? That Jesus is the promised anointed one, and that by believing in him, it would actually bring us life. We would have eternal life. We would have a certain quality of life and we would have a forever life. It's beautiful. It affects our destiny as well. 
So John now is trying to address and refute some of what we'd call the early Gnostic teachings. Gnostic means knowledge. And basically, there were you know, pseudo-gospels floating around. It's really interesting. And the church ignored them because they knew they were incorrect. They, there's a lot of magic in them. I don't know if you've ever read some of them. I've read some of them. It's really, you know, you know they start talking about Jesus, you know, as a little boy doing miracles. The first miracle happened after the Spirit of God came on him at baptism. He wasn't doing miracles earlier. So there's a lot of, you know, what I'll call them urban legends. And, you know, how many know we always have urban legends? Does anybody know that? Even today, you know, a lot of stuff that, you know, people talk about as if it's the truth, it's not the truth. And I, I hate to tell you, Google and Wikipedia not always are correct, you know. The research isn't always accurate. I don't want to blow you away, but it's the truth, you know. So sometimes we need to hear this kind of stuff and rein some stuff back in. So in the Gospel of John, we notice in the opening statements the challenge he brings to those who are simply trying to humanize uh, Jesus. In other words, they're going to deny his deity, his nature as God. And so I want to take a look at four things briefly today that will help us discover who Jesus is. And the first one is simply that Jesus was preexistent. So John introduces Jesus as actually existing before his earthly life, which is a very powerful thing. And the way he describes it is amazing. Look at chapter one, verse one. I love how it starts. You know, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, let me just stop there. If we're at all familiar with the Bible, when I say in the beginning, what do you think of? John chapter one or another book? Genesis chapter was in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So John picks up on that language and he introduces it in his prologue, his introductory remarks. In the beginning, you know, the word was with God and the word was God. Wow. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and then verse 3, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. So here he's describing Jesus in a unique way by calling him the word. Now in the Greek language it's just logos. He's the logos. Now that word logos is an interesting word because the idea behind the word in the Greek is simply this, that it implies intelligence and the transmission of communication. It's an idea. There's something beyond just words. I mean, when we use words, we're communicating concepts and ideas. Here, it's, it's communicating a person. This is a person he's talking about here. Now, biblical scholar Merrill Tenney points out um, the opening words remind us of Genesis text. And the expression does not refer to a particular moment of time, but assumes a timeless eternity. So when you use the words in the beginning, we're not just talking about, well, this is the beginning. No, it's, it's the idea of this is eternity. This is what was going on. Now, Jesus, when we take a look at the nature of God, and I was thinking about this, why does John make such a big deal about the fact that he says everything was created by him? Why is he zeroing in on the fact that Jesus is a creator? Because he's telling you who he is. 
How many know only God creates ultimately everything? It's God who's the creator. And we're going to take a look both in Old Testament and New Testament. One of the great themes of both texts, of uh, both testaments is simply this. God is creator, God is redeemer. God is creator, God is redeemer. See, God created, and then he had to deliver Israel and redeem them from slavery. Then we come to the New Testament. God's the creator. Here's the person of Jesus. He's a creator. And then we see he's the redeemer. He's the one that saves us from our slavery, but not to, you know, a national enslavement program, but actually delivers from a greater problem called sin, which we all deal with as human beings. Now, in Genesis, we know that Jesus is there creating. We're going to see it. It says in chapter... uh, 11 verse 3, it says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. This is how the world came into being. So that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. Now everybody will agree, we don't totally know how it all started, but as a Christian community, we're saying what's real simple, there was a creator. We say there's a first origin point, is God who was preexistent and God who was eternal. I always love it when people say, well, pastor, where did God come from? I'm going, no, he's eternal. He's always been. You know, we don't, he didn't originate at some point. He's always existed. But at some point, he created the universe. And how we went about it was, and we read it in Genesis, you know, it's, he basically starts creating by speaking it into existence. And so, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, not only did he speak the word, he says, let there be. Remember that? Verse 3. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it says, and the world was formless and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth. And then the next verse, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God is speaking things into being. And that word we're getting from our text here is actually speaking about Christ. And then God does his ultimate creation, which is you and me. Humanity. Human beings are the crowning glory of God's creation. He's made us a little lower than the angels, it says in the Psalms, but really he created us in his image. Now look what it says in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now one of the reasons why I put this text before, that there has to be, you know, God is talking in the plural, and so we get a sense of how do, you, how do you reveal to people that there's one God but three persons and not have a belief in a whole bunch of gods? And all of the ancient peoples, by the way, there were no secularists in those days. Everybody was a religious person. They believed in something. They believed either in the you know, animists who believe in the wind and the mountains and the sun and the stars. And they believe that you know, there's spirits out there. But now God is revealing himself as one God And yet we read right in that early Genesis account, he said, let us make man in our image. So we recognize the fact of the name of God there is not, you know, it's it's in a plural form. Elohim is plural. And he's, God is, Elohim says, let us. Who's us? God himself, manifested in three persons. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there in creation, creating everything, and they're creating humanity. And he's made us in his image. Now think about how powerful that is. He has made us in a moral image. 
It's not, we're not talking about physical stuff. We're talking about moral image. How many know that you and I basically know there's some things that are always wrong? How many know taking someone's life is wrong? Intrinsically, we know that there's a moral element to life. We know some elements are wrong in life because it does devastation to other people. It brings about destruction and harm and hurt and all the rest of it. And we know intrinsically there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Now, we may have a confusion as to what we think should be right or wrong, but we know there's this distinction between right and wrong. There's a moral nature to humanity. And then we recognize that we have a creative side. How many know human beings are very creative? Does anybody know that? Well, why are we so creative? Because we have the image of God in us. And then God gave us something else that's interesting. He gave us volition, a will. He gave us that dangerous thing that gets us into trouble, you know, where we choose. And, you know, like Adam and Eve, we can always blame them. You know, they, they're the guys that cause all the problems in the world, right? If they just obeyed God, we'd all be okay. But how many here know that we all do the same trick? You know, we're all doing things we shouldn't be doing. So don't just blame your earthly forefathers, Adam and Eve. You and I have done a few stupid things in our life, right? We've sinned against God and gone our own way and, and uh, we've got, to, got us into all kinds of trouble. So now Paul is, uh, sorry, so then you, you know, we, we see this beautiful declaration by the Jewish people, there's only one God, but you got the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of times people are a little confused about the Trinity and it is a little bit of a mystery. There's no question about that. But I don't have a problem with it. I have to just accept it by faith because I say to myself, how can a finite mind understand an infinite person? How can a, a person who was created in time understand someone who's eternal? Totally. I think it's going to be a little difficult. But Paul now is helping us know who Jesus is. So he's now writing here to the Colossians and he says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. I know that word firstborn throws people, but it just means preeminent. He's the preeminent one over all creation. For in him, speaking of Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And here's another important point, and this is where our culture has a lot of problems. We have been fashioned by God. We have a creator. We have a maker. If you have a creator and a maker, you're accountable to your creator and maker. We don't want to, do, we don't want to buy that. And it says it's created for him. You and I weren't created for ourselves. See, we are so self-centered, it gets us into all kinds of trouble. We, we want to stick ourselves in the center of our world, and then we get all upset when things aren't working out the way we want them to. You see, because we, have, we are at the center. And so, we're, we, you know, a lot of people are upset with God. Why does God allow this? Why is God, hey, listen, you've got this backwards. God doesn't answer to us. We have to answer to God. Amen. And the moment we flip that thing, we have all kinds of havoc in our life. And I've noticed this, you know, when you are at the center, instead of Christ being at the center, life doesn't work. And you can see that. Now, I was thinking about this, you know, think about, uh, you have a compass. How many know compasses are amazing? You know, they always point to the magnetic north. Isn't that true? Yeah, and so you get a compass. Let's say you're, you're wandering around, and I, I know we're in cities and there's maps and all that, but move away from that for a moment. You're out in the woods somewhere. You're up northern Alberta here, and you were out there, and you don't have a clue where you're at. 
About that time you're happy, you've got a compass. Anybody say amen to that? So you can pull that thing out and you go, I don't know if I'm going north, south, east, or west. I have no clue where I'm at. And you pull this compass out and it's gonna help you center your bearings to know which direction you're headed. Now you can tell a little bit by the sun, but if you've got a cloudy day, thank God for the compass, right? You know, and I, I look at our lives so often, when we're at the center of our lives and we don't have some guide to give us direction to where we're going, we're gonna have all kinds of problems in our lives. And I see people struggling, they don't know if they're coming or going, they don't know if they're going north or south, east or west, they're making all kinds of major decisions in their lives. Folks, we need direction. And we need something that will help us get a sense of where we are and where we're going. And when we understand that we were created by God for him, that we were created for his good pleasure and he has a purpose for us and we stop fooling around and saying, I want to do my thing, which is a lot more puny in the eyes of God than what he has for us. How many would say, you know, if God made me, and I believe he did, and he created you, specifically designed you as a unique person on the planet, and he has a purpose for you, wouldn't it be wise to discover who he is and then find out what his purpose is for your life? Don't you think that makes so much more sense? And it's so much more enriching, and you end up on this amazing adventure with God because you and I, here's what we want. We want to limit our lives so that we're comfortable and we feel secure. But we have to admit, this world is not secure. You know, somebody just found out they walked out of Walmart and got shot by somebody that had issues in their life, obviously. And, you know, I know people think it was a, you know, a targeted thing. It wasn't a targeted thing. It was a random thing. That, people don't want you to know that because it creates fear in people's hearts. Can I tell you, our hope is not in the ability of people to restrain other people. Our hope is in a God who's controlling our lives. Our hope is in a God who has your days numbered. And you have an appointed time and you and I can walk with confidence and say, God, I'm walking in your purposes and accomplishing your will. How exciting is that? And when you get up in the morning and you, you know, I love it, you can recalibrate your life every morning. You say, how do you do that, Pastor? I get into the word of God and we can all do that. We get into the word of God and say, Lord, I want to recalibrate with you today. I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. I want your agenda to be fulfilled in my life. Powerful. He says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's keeping this world together. So you may think, if it's all falling apart, Pastor, I'm going, yeah, but Jesus is holding it together. You know, you may feel like it's falling apart, but the whole world is in his hands. He has a plan, folks, and it's very exciting. And God's kingdom is expanding right now in this whole world. You know, sometimes you think, it looks like it's going to hell in a heart, cart in a handbasket, Pastor. I'm going, yeah, but it's not as bad as you think it is. Right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is winning the day. It's prevailing over the earth. And it's growing and growing and growing. And it's going to take down nations that are rising up against God. God says, don't worry about those guys. I'll take them down in their own time. Beautiful, you know? Then we read in the book of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then he describes seven features of the son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Who made the universe? God did, but primarily through the son and through the work of the spirit. 
and through God speaking them into existence. And then he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I gotta stop and ask the question, if you are the exact representation of God, who are you? You're the exact representation of God, who are you? You have to be God, right? You know, and then it says sustaining all things by his powerful word. No wonder Jesus could say to death, in, when, he, when Lazarus was in the tomb, come on out of there, Lazarus. And death could not claim Lazarus because there was a greater one than death itself. It was the prince of life. And Jesus was willing to give his life so that he could totally conquer death once and for all. How powerful is that? And then it says, after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Author William Hall says, our one basic purpose of the prologue in John's gospel is to identify the historical Jesus with the eternal logos, or the word, and thereby contend that what men heard in his brief ministry is what God has always been trying to say to the world. So listen, if you hear what Jesus says, you're hearing what God's saying. You know, and so can you imagine how arrogant it was for these Pharisees to be, and scribes, arguing with Jesus when they were actually arguing with God? But you know, we do it all the time. We're arguing with God all the time. Come on now. You don't think so? Of course. You know, why don't we just say, he knows best. He knows best, right? He says, first the Jews, this, this emphasis on the preexistence of the word was not speculative but practical, designed to meet two current problems. Number one, the Jews tended to set the veneration of the worship of scripture above the claims of Jesus because of its great antiquity. In other words, how old they were. Do you, do you know they were basically saying, yeah, but it says this in the Bible. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm the Bible. You know, I'm the one that wrote it. I know what I want to say here. I mean, let me reinterpret it for you. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but this is what I say to you. He said, you guys got it wrong. I'm gonna give you what I meant. Are we catching on? So these guys are saying, we're safe. We're hanging on to the Bible. Jesus trumps the Bible, folks. And, and, and what I mean by that is he's not going to go against it, but he's going to interpret it correctly. That's where we have our problems. This is interpretation, you know. Then it says, uh, John re replied that the revelation given in Jesus is actually much older than the Old Testament, for he already existed with God before history. So you know, you're saying, well, this is really old. Jesus goes, yeah, but I'm older. Remember when he said to them, before Abraham was, I am? really blew them away, going, hey, you're not even 50 years old yet. He's going, I'm, ex I'm eternal. I was there with Abraham on the mountain. How many think that's an amazing statement? No wonder they got upset. You know what? They, the Jews are smart people. They figured out he's saying he's God. They got pick up rocks. They're going to kill him. They thought he was committing blasphemy. You wonder why Jesus was crucified? Because they thought, you know, he was blasphemous. But Jesus was actually saying, you guys are messing with your heads. You, you're about to kill the one who actually you think you worship. That's scary. Secondly, many of the Greeks, in contrast to the Jews, attached no absolute authority in ancient scripture. So in their popular methodologies, their gods were fickle. To John, the word was, a guarantee, was, was guaranteeing dependability of the word. The logos is forever constant, unconditioned by historical changes. What's he saying? God is immutable. God is unchangeable. What God says will happen. 
When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. Hey, you say, well, how does all of this apply to me? Because so far you're just talking about Jesus and him being God, that's all great. So what difference does this make? Here's what difference it makes, and I like this. It means that what God says he'll do. We can have confidence that when we read the Bible and God says it, we can go, okay, he's gonna do this. When Jesus says, I'm coming back, you and I can have a guarantee he is coming back. Woo! You know, when he says, I'm gonna conquer death and you are gonna live with me forever, we can have a big confidence. Hey, I'm gonna live forever with Jesus. I like it. You know, we can have reassurances that God's promises will become reality. And therefore, he's trustworthy. And when we put our full trust in him, he's able to care for us and meet all of the challenges in our life. You know, I can just say, God, this is what's bugging me. I'm just gonna give it to you. God, could you handle this because it's beyond my capacity? Lord, you know, I have a family member who's battling cancer. I don't know how to handle this. God says, just give it to me. I can handle it. Isn't that beautiful? I can take all of my cares and give them to God because God cares for us. It's so incredibly meaningful. But let me move on to the second things that John shows us about Jesus is the prophetic announcement. My points get shorter, fortunately. John is quick in pointing out God's introduction to Christ from a prophetic voice. He's from a long line of prophets. Uh, R.G. Tasker says, John's witness is mentioned at the earliest possible moment in the gospel because the evangelist is primarily concerned to record that by an act of divine uh, condescension and infinite compassion. Yeah, try speaking, it's hard. The word has entered this disordered and murky world and entered it precisely in the sphere where sin is most deeply entrenched. Where do you think sin is most deeply entrenched in our lives? In our hearts, that's right, and in our bodies. And what does God do? He takes on the human body. That's what he's saying. He's condescending. What is he doing? God is limiting himself. This is what Philippians is talking about. Jesus limited himself. He's God. What do you mean he's limiting himself? Do you know God is everywhere present at one time? So what does Jesus do? He limits himself to being present in a body. That's a limitation for God. You know, here's another limitation Jesus did. God knows everything. Jesus limited how much knowledge he had as a human being. He was a baby. He had to grow up. He grew in wisdom and stature. That was a limitation. Could you imagine humbling yourself as God and becoming a baby, having to depend on human beings? Isn't that kind of scary? It is a little frightening if you think about it. Good thing he picked some good people like Joseph and Mary, but that's a little frightening if you ask me. You know, he limited his power. But every once in a while, God just burst out. You know, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, boop, God pops out. You know, like it says, his face was like brighter than the shining sun. Could you imagine those three disciples going, whoa, what just happened with Jesus? I mean, they don't have the parrot you know, the lighting show stuff that we have today. I mean, all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is brighter than the noonday sun. And then, you know, he's walking on water in the middle of the night. He's just walking on water. That's pretty good, you know. And then he's, he's telling dead people to come back to life again. That's not bad. Every once in a while, God just keeps popping out. You know, his nature, poop, God pops out of him. You know, they're looking like, what kind of a guy is this? Did you see what he just did? 
How many think, and I was saying that in the first service, wouldn't it be amazing, hop in a time capsule, set it for, you know, the time when Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and that time zone, his ministry. How many go, I, I like to hang with Jesus for about three and a half years, just kind of watching all the stuff he's doing, but knowing what I know today, so I'm going, hey guys, just, just wait. This is, this is gonna really blow your mind. Just wait till what Jesus is gonna do here, you know? Wouldn't that be fun? Okay. I got a weird imagination, I know. Okay. So then they say to John, hey, John, tell us, who you, are you? He says here in chapter 1 and verse 21, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah, one of the prophets? I am not. Are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18 talked about a prophet greater than Moses. No, I'm not him. Who are you? Give us an answer. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you what I am from Isaiah. I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight for the Lord, make straight way for the Lord. What's he saying? I'm just a herald. And you know in those days, you know what heralds would do? They'd go before kings and, you know, they'd play their little trumpets and say, make way for the king, you know, and people had to, oh, you know, get ready for the king. And they'd all get out of the way and they'd all bow down and they'd all be cheering as the king came by. He says, I'm just preparing you because the king is coming. And really, as Christians, you know, what is our job? We're kind of heralds. We're just preparing the society for the coming back of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. What an amazing job we have. We should be saying to people, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Get ready. He's coming. And he really is coming. And, you know, and sometimes we get so lackadaisical as Christians. We're going, oh, I'm, I'm kind of worried about turkey dinner. Who am I going to buy this gift for so-and-so? And, you know, we're all hung up on, you know, this person's in political power. Yeah, well, you know, 20 years ago it was this guy. Now it's this person. And, you know, all the things that are going on, they did that then. And now they're doing this now. And I'm going, hey, guess what? Don't worry about all that stuff so much. Jesus is coming back. He's going to straighten out the mess we're in. How many know we've made such a mess of it down here? There's only one person who can straighten out the problem. His name is Jesus, and you and I are his heralds. We can run around going, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming. We need to get ready. Let me move on to the third thing, the power of the word. Do you know there's power in God's word? He can speak and life can come. He can create out of the power of his word. Do you know not only did he create in the creation of the world, he created a new creation. Do you realize when you and I hear the word of God and faith comes by hearing the word of God and faith starts welling up inside of our hearts and you and I believe that Jesus Christ died for us personally and we believe that he rose again from the dead and we ask Jesus to come into our lives, we become a new creation through the word of God. Just like he created the worlds out of speaking it, right now he's speaking into human hearts, creating a new creation so that we can hear the echoes of Paul's words. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a what? A new creation. Wow. That's amazing. That's powerful. It says here in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. People didn't recognize Jesus. Isn't that sad? The greatest person that ever came to the planet, most people didn't know who he was. He came to that which was his own, his own people, who studied the scriptures, the Jewish people. They didn't receive him. Now, some of them did. But what he means by that is the majority of them missed it. Isn't that sad? Yet, I love this verse, yet, verse 12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right or the authority 
to become children of God. Is that beautiful? To be a child of God. Yeah, you're a child of God by creation, but we're talking about child of God by the new creation. That you were a son and daughter of the Most High God. Do you know how privileged we are? Do you have any sense of it? Can I just give you a little sense of it? C.S. Lewis once was preaching a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And he was trying to convey the idea that when you're meeting people, you have no idea what you're meeting. You see, if the eyes of our understanding were open, people are either moving towards God or moving away from God. People who, you know, sometimes we make judgments on people because you ever ask the question, why is it that some Christians are nasty and some non-Christians are nice? How many have ever asked that question? You know, I got to, C.S. Lewis has a great answer. Read his book, Mere Christianity. He talks about that. He says, you know, sometimes God in his grace gives people nice disposition. It's a gift from God. But the reality is if you're trusting in yourself, that's a major mistake. Because, you know, you're either moving towards God or away from God. There's only two directions people are moving in. You're either moving towards him or away from him. You go, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but are you moving towards him? Are you a real follower? Are you following Jesus? Are you moving towards him? Or are you moving away from him? Listen to what Lewis says in the sermon. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now, he's not telling you that you're going to be gods and goddesses. What he means by that is you're going to be like God. Because, you know, God's going to make us like himself. We're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. To remember that the dullest and most uninterested person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption found only in a nightmare. All day long, we're in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And it's in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, that there are no ordinary people. It's very, what is he saying? He says, listen, look at people in light of eternity and it'll change the way you're looking at them. Do you know, some of you, you say, I have these issues in my life, I struggle with this. I struggle with physical maladies. I struggle with emotional things. I struggle with, you know, bad disposition and I'm working on it, but I seem to be bumbling along. Can I tell you one day, it's all gonna be gone. You're gonna look just like Jesus. Is that amazing? How many of that's amazing? We're gonna look at each other in heaven and go, wow, I just didn't realize how amazing you are. And you know, I'm gonna say this. We have the opportunity to be developing these things right now. So when we get to heaven... You know, people are going to go, I just never knew how amazing you were as a person. Do you know what's really interesting? When I do funerals, I learn about people. It's true. You, you, you think you know people, and then people start coming from all over. They start eulogizing and telling you stuff. And then you go, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea they did this. But I'm going to tell you, even at a funeral, you still don't have any idea what that person is like. But one day in heaven, you're going to see everything for what it really is. There are people doing things in secret right now that would blow you away. There are people having an amazing impact in the world. You have no idea. They may just seem like they're a very obscure person, but they're staying at home. They're interceding in prayer. They're transforming major situations in the world, just even through their prayer life, and they get no credit. But God knows all these things. Let me move on to the last thing, the person of the word. Who is Jesus? You know, he was about to suffer. Jesus is at the last meal with his disciples. And he says to them, I'm going to head home. I'm, I'm heading home. They said, well, we want to go with you. Well, you know, you can't go with me right now. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. But when I come again, you're going to be with me. 
And Thomas, you know, he says, well, listen, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Because he said, you'll know the way. He says, how can we know the way? Then Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, Jesus Christ is the truth. Truth is a person. The way is a person. You know, life is a person. When you meet Jesus, you're meeting truth, you're meeting life, and you're meeting the way to the Father. If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do do know him, and you've seen him. You've seen God, is what he's saying. Oh, I love Philip. He comes along. Wait wait a minute, Jesus. If you show me the Father, that'll be enough for all of us. I mean, if you show us who God is, we'll be satisfied with that. We're going to be really content just seeing God. I love Jesus' response. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What is he saying? When you see me, you see God. How can you say, show us the Father? Wow, is that a powerful statement or what? He's telling people. You know when these people tell me that Jesus didn't act like he was God or didn't think he was God? That's a bunch of baloney. That's hogwash. Jesus knew he was God. What do you th- He's telling them. He's telling them this stuff. And I love, you know, what... Uh, I'm going to skip over because I'm running out of time. Let me just close with this thought. Um, it's okay. Relax. People are bugging me now for my notes and my PowerPoint. It's okay. You can still get them if you ask for them. Okay. I love what Lewis says. He says here, I'm trying to prevent, in mere Christianity, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. It says him, but it's, he's, ta- he's talking about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic or he'd be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What is, what is he, Lewis, saying? He's saying it's real simple. Don't tell him, don't tell him. I've heard people say this. Well, I, I think Jesus is a great moral teacher. No, you can't say that. Because what Jesus said was he was God. And you've got to handle that statement. What are you going to do with it? You see, the question is, who is he? You know, and I love how the disciples, and I, I read it earlier, and, you know, and I, and I read it in Matthew here this morning. Jesus said to, to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's the question I'm going to raise. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because based on that question determines the quality of your life and the destiny of your life. Let's stand this morning. <clears throat> you see, John 1.12 says, to as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right or the authority to be his child. That's powerful. And so the question is, are we willing to receive him? Now, maybe you're here today and you go, I'm a Christian. Great. Wonderful. Do you think you could get to know him better? How many think you've tapped into all he is? 
I've been a Christian 42 years. I can honestly say I'm still discovering. I'm still discovering Jesus. That's what's happening. And I'm going to say this. He is more dynamic than I ever thought. He's more real than I ever could believe. He's more powerful than I could ever consider. This life is more exciting. It's a greater adventure. I've seen God work in so many situations. I've seen God answer such tremendous prayers. I've witnessed miracles. I've seen demons leave people. I've, I, you know, it's so exciting to be a follower of Jesus. And I keep saying to myself, just let him have full dominion in your soul and let him have his way in your life because it just gets better. And the people that I know that are older than me just keep reminding me, it just keeps getting better. Until one day we're with him. Isn't that great? But it has to begin somewhere. It has to begin somewhere. We have to get introduced. How does that happen? You and I have to just say, okay, I want to know you, Jesus. Would you come into my life and reveal yourself to me? Do you know God's going to answer that prayer because that's his longing and desire? And if that's your call today, it'll change the whole essence of your life because you're now moving the center of your life from yourself or a loved one or from something that you're trusting in to putting your trust fully and completely in him. And all of a sudden, you have the right center to life. And even though sometimes it may be challenging and it may be perplexing and it may be difficult, you're at the right center. And you're operating from the right center. And I can make a guarantee, it always works out. It always works out. Always. That's why Jesus could, or Paul could say to us in Romans, all things work together for good. All things. Well, what about this bad thing? Oh, God's going to take that bad thing. He's going to unfold it. He's going to do something with it. He's going to use everything and make it work to good. And what he means by good is he's going to make you more like him because of the challenge or the difficulty, the problem, whatever. He's going to make you more like him. Because in the end, that's what we all need. That's what's going to make us happy. That's the true result and the way to find happiness is not by going after it in our own abilities. It's by surrendering our life to Christ. And you're here today. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to do that today. With just every head bowed, just close your eyes for a minute. I'm going to give that people an opportunity. You're here today. You say, you know what? I want, to, I, want to, I want to find Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I've never done that before, but that's you today. Just raise your hand right now, just where you're at. Okay, God bless you. Yes. Anybody else? Yes, I say that. Anybody else? Okay, good. Yeah, wonderful. Great. Yes, <clears throat> beautiful. People are responding. Awesome. What I'm going to have you do is in front of you in the pew, there's a little card that says, yes, I do. I want you to fill that out. Take it to the guest reception. They have a little booklet. I'm going to pray for you right now, but there's a little booklet that's going to be an introductory booklet to explain to you the Christian beginnings. Please pick up that booklet. It'll help you grow in your faith in Christ, okay? Because you know what? It's a decision that leads to a life. But how many of the rest of us, you know, we're Christians right now, we say, you know what, Pastor? I just feel like I need to know Jesus more. I just feel like I gotta discover more about him. And that's me. God's calling you right now. He just says, I want you to just trust me more than you ever have before. I want you to take you on this amazing journey with me 
this great discovery, and that's you. Just raise your hand. That's, you know, I got my, both my hands up. I want to keep going on this journey with God. So beautiful. So amazing. It's great. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you today. We just yield our lives to you. We want you to be at the very essence and center of our being. We just want to walk with you. We want to know your will and your way and your purposes for our lives. Lord, we want to experience your joy and your peace and your hope. And I just pray, Father, during this Christmas season, as much as we enjoy our family and great food and all the things we get to do around Christmas, Lord, help us to connect with you in a way this Christmas maybe we never have before in this season of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.